afternoon and welcome to the 21st of the COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I serve as the host for these discussions. We are streaming on YouTube Live. The link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles YouTube channel, or you can email me or you can find me on Twitter at US of Disaster. Please do help spread the word about these discussions, send suggestions for guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. And I have new music on the podcast, courtesy of Amber Ferreira. I hope you will join us tomorrow for a discussion of COVID-19 victims, memory, and disaster memorials. My guests include Jay Aronson. Jay is the founder and director of the Center for Human Rights Science at Carnegie Mellon University and the author of the book, Who Owns the Dead? The Science and Politics of Death at Ground Zero. My second guest tomorrow will be Edia Benton. She's an associate professor of anthropology and African studies at Northwestern University, where she's affiliated with the Science and Human Culture Program. Her first book is titled HIV Exceptionalism, Development Through Disease in Sierra Leone. and was published in 2015. As of today, there are 1,904,566 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. This is up from 1,677,256 cases Friday. 572,169 of those cases are in the United States, up from 486,994 Friday. There are now a total of 23,070 deaths reported in the United States, up from 18,022 on Friday. There are also um, over 30,000 reported survivors of COVID-19 in the United States as of today. The New York Times right now has a story up by Sandra Garcia, Amy Ortiz, Christine Hauser, and Mahir Zaveri about a tornadoes, a group of tornadoes that uh, struck last night in the South. The photo with this story is extraordinary and worth checking out. It shows a woman named Emma Pritchett in Chatsworth, Georgia, standing in her kitchen. The cabinets are there, the countertops are normal, the stove, even the canisters are there, but no walls. From Kentucky to Louisiana, the storm system last night and early this morning brought storms, high winds, tornadoes, and left 72,000 people without power. It left Emma Pritchett in a case where she had her life, but she could no longer shelter in her place from COVID-19. A disaster like this, so common in the Midwest and South, and where I grew up in Texas this time of year, it really throws into relief some of the problems we're gonna face as this pandemic goes on. Multiple disasters will be striking at the same time. Hurricane season, fire season, tornado season are upon us now. Can our overtaxed health system, emergency management system, and our media absorb compound disasters? Another issue, the immediacy of the tornado warning is one thing, but we also live in an age of slow disaster, climate change. And it's hard to tell people how much to worry and prepare for different types of disasters. Risk communication, in other words, is hard. But is there a more crucial type of communication out there today for public officials or for experts, for scientists and social scientists? 
I wanted to talk about this today with an expert. And so part of our discussion today will be with risk expert Howard Kornruther. We're going to start that conversation in about 20 minutes. We have a big program today. Howard Kornruther is with us. And I'm also very eager to welcome back first, Dr. Esther Chernak. Dr. Chernak is back for her second visit to COVID calls. She's a professor in the Department of Environmental Health at the Drexel Dornsife School of Public Health. And she also has a position in the Drexel University College of Medicine. She's the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at Drexel. I had Dr. Chernak on COVID calls on March 19th. And on that day, there were 14,000 cases of COVID-19 reported in the United States. Welcome back, Esther. Thank you for making time to come back to COVID calls. Happy to be here. I'd like to remind everyone to ask questions in the chat for YouTube Live. You can also tweet them by tagging me at US of Disaster. That's been working very well for people to get questions in. So please do send your questions either for Esther Chernak and keep your questions for a little bit later with Howard Kornrother. So Esther, I'm wondering um, if, if we could just start, could you give us an update on the COVID-19 situation in Philadelphia? What are the trends? What are the most acute concerns? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> I think today Philadelphia reported 6,813 cases and 190 deaths. And I believe the increment was a little over 400 cases uh, compared to Friday. And I think what Philadelphia is hoping that it's seeing is a leveling off of the rate of increase in new cases. Um, and hopefully, and time will tell, uh, the, the fact that the city may be achieving a plateau. Um, I don't think we're at a point where we're saying it's decreasing, but I think we're hoping that this might be a plateau or the beginning of a plateau. I think that um, the city has planned for, or is planning for, uh, the healthcare resources to be overwhelmed and they are they are working to stand up an alternative care facility related to Temple Hospital, um, Rhea Chorus Center. Individual hospitals have, have been able to activate ancillary or auxiliary care facilities either related to their primary facility or, or nearby. But at the end of the day, um, I think that the healthcare system in Philadelphia has been able to handle the COVID surge um, without resources being completely overwhelmed. It's certainly not normal. It's certainly not easy, it's certainly not, not stressing the system. There's a shortage of PPE, healthcare workers are stressed, but I think the situation in Philadelphia at the moment is different from other cities like New York City, which have really truly been overwhelmed. When we spoke last, you were just getting about to get started with drive-through testing and you were involved with that. Could you tell us what that was like? Yeah, that was interesting. So yeah, I was involved in helping the city kind of plan plan that operation and then stand it up in its first week. And it, it actually closed uh, last Friday. It was a federally supported effort, a drive-through only effort. Um, I think overall the site tested between 150 to 200 people a day. It was quite resource intensive. Um, I think once the federal government pulled out much of its resources, the city made the decision to um, to keep other less less resource intensive sites opened, and we'll see what they decide in the future. At the moment, I think given the availability of testing resources, it makes sense not to keep that site open. There's better ways to use the staff. What's the philosophy of testing right now in Philadelphia? If somebody wants a test, can they get a test? Does the public health department have a vantage point on this? I think that the recommendations in Philadelphia are, are pretty 
pretty rigid in the sense that I think it's still 50 and over symptomatic, healthcare worker and symptomatic. I don't think we're testing or recommending testing more widely than that. CDC's recommendations are slightly broader for hospitals. You know, all hospitalized patients are to be tested. And I think there's well over 20 something test sites in the city. Most of them are affiliated with healthcare systems and they're making their own calls about who to test. They might be a little bit more liberal. But at the end of the day, we're not testing nearly the numbers of folks we would need to test to get a true picture of who's got this and who doesn't in the city. So you used the term a plateau a moment ago, and but plateaus can go on for a while, yep. right? I mean, that's exactly right. How long can we be at this plateau? It's a great question. You know, and so much of it depends on how how long people remain in hospital and the acuity of illness. Um, it's hard to know. And this, this plateau is still too high. I mean, every day between four and 500 new cases, is, yeah. that's not a good place to plateau at. Um, I think people are gratified in some perverse way that we're not continuing to go higher than that. But I think the goal will be to, you know, have a daily incidence of cases that is much lower than that. I mean, it must be frustrating to you. I mean, you're a master public health communicator, but all of this language, um, you know, reaching a peak, reaching a plateau, mm. we're, gra we're groping for metaphors to try to actually visualize where we are with this. Um, have you found a, a way to sort of communicate these sort of things in clear language that people can get their mind around? Even this idea that, we, well, we've reached plateau, and so that immediately makes me think, oh, good, we're not going higher. But as you just right. said, well, this plateau is way too high. I mean, that's an effective way to communicate. But um, are you having success with, with these I'm metaphors? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that the, there's a lot of public health vocabulary in the lexicon these days. And I'm not sure I'm the best judge as to what's really accessible for the rest of the world. I mean, we talk about flattening the curve, which arguably is like it describes a plateau. Um, you know, I think it's conceptually difficult for folks to think about, you know, decreasing the rate of increase. Um, I think it's easy for folks to sort of balance numbers of new cases and hospital beds and capacity in that way. Um, but I think there's so much to capacity that that is sort of beneath the surface. It's so much more than beds. It's, it's equipment and it's medications and it's staff for those beds and it's special beds like intensive care unit beds and ventilator beds that you know, have so much more nuance to them. I'm not sure there is a great way to, um, to, to discuss it. And I think it's challenging because, you know, the people are starting to talk about recovery and mm -hmm. re-entry and exit strategy and how we get back to normal. And all of those concepts are, are linked to, to flattening the curve. But in reality, we really have to have very few new cases every day before we can get back to anything close to, you know, normal human interactions that don't depend on social distancing to curb transmission. You must have seen some uh, pretty scared folks in the drive-through testing. I mean, do personal narratives, is that a better way, do you think, to communicate where we are right now? Sort of telling individual stories of people who've been grappling with this? I do think that there are folks out there, particularly in, in parts of the country that don't have high levels of transmission that still don't appreciate the gravity and the severity of the pandemic and the severity of illness in, in terms of certain individuals. So I think, you know, I see on the television news, there's a lot of personal stories of Ill, Ill people who are very, who are sick. Um, there are some interesting stories happening now from the healthcare world. A lot of stories out of New York City, a lot of ER docs, you know, going public with their stories. 
um, Temple University came out with a pretty nice three-minute video of their alternate care facility at the Boyer Pavilion next to their main hospital and, and what that was like to stand up. Um, I think those are all useful stories to tell folks, um, but I think it's, it's hard to, I think it's going to be hard to explain to folks once we start seeing fewer cases why we can't turn a light switch, you know, turn on the switch and go back to normal, uh, normal life, because there's still going to be, you know, infections in the community, and it doesn't take much for these sparks to catch fire. So then let's come back to, I mean, the question that's on everybody, everybody's mind. So this seems to indicate this sheltering has, has worked. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, I do. I mean, it's painful. It's a blunt, <laughs> blunt instrument, but it absolutely works. I mean, in the words of Dr. Tony Fauci, you know, stay inside because if you don't leave the house, it's a it's a person to person transmitted infection. The virus will have no place to go. So it does work. It's just a cruel and blunt instrument to prevent transmission. I was reading today some old newspapers about Princeton, New Jersey, which actually had pretty high rate in 1918 in the in the so-called Spanish flu pandemic, and they shut down uh, schools for a month then. And there's this this uh, moment in the newspaper, it says, well, public officials say as of November 1st, everything's back open. So it was off and on. Are we going to be able to have something like that? Are we going to have a moment where Governor Wolf or the mayor, I wouldn't think it would be the president. I don't think it'd be the president. Somebody will say unsheltered now. Will it work that way? Or is it going to be much more incremental? I do think it will be incremental. Today, uh, Governor Cuomo in New York announced that he was going to work sort of with a coalition of governors in the mid-Atlantic states to kind of think through, I think he described it as recovery. And I assume he meant kind of re-entry and re-engagement in the world. Um, you know, I think there have been a number of roadmaps that have been published in the last week and a half by a range of folks, folks mm -hmm. right politically, folks on the left politically, some scientists. They all kind of say the same thing which is, you know, once we, get, once we endure this pain of social distancing and really reduce infections, and there's a, there's a number that different people have in terms of how low that needs to be, we can talk about a gradual reopening. Um, and so to me, it's contingent on two things. One is the gradualness of the reopening. So you still have to have a reopening that limits, by and large, a lot of social contact. So we won't, you know, dive back into mass gatherings. There'll be, there'll be small openings of things, restaurants, maybe you can go to stores more often, that kind of thing. Um, but the biggest, the biggest thing it depends on, in my view, is this, uh, our ability to get some visibility on this, on, mm -hmm. on new infections, and to be really targeted in terms of isolating new infections, identifying contacts, tracking them down, and quarantining or, or confining them. And that's a much more complex thing than I think most people understand. You know, we come to testing, 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 like, like it's just a logistics challenge to, you know, to solve the problem of sufficient test kits and laboratory capacity. And that is a huge problem and absolutely requires concerted efforts. But, you know, the, the public health response and the ability to really, you know, investigate each one of those community um, uh, reported cases and identify their contacts and make sure that those contacts are, are not in, you know, are, are isolating and, you know, in quarantine is our term, is really challenging. It's, it's equally challenging as, as um, amplifying testing. And I think people need to understand that in, in, in ways that are much more complex than people recognize. I mean, even right now, the city of Philadelphia is investigating less than half of the reported cases. Um, mm. You know, we're 
the, the, as I understand it, the city is investigating cases that are in high-risk situations like uh, prisons and uh, long-term care facilities and congregate care facilities where transmission is facilitated. There's not a lot of community-based uh, investigation happening. And, and for us to be able to return to a normal life, you know, we're going to have to arrest all of that transmission um, mm. really creates, you know, sparks additional flames. Joe Biden had a an op-ed in the New York Times yesterday in which he laid out his plan. And in there was a paragraph in there that said that um, the government needed to do, um, move towards vaccine. But in the meantime, sure. there needed to be, and I think there's no, I hope there's no disagreement about that, but um, testing, infection, infection testing, serological testing, and contact tracing. Paragraph, statement, this is where we need to be. But the way that comes across is that it's a simple policy choice. You would choose one candidate, we get that package. We get that public health package. We choose a different candidate, we get what we've already had. Am I right in thinking it's, that's just too simple? I mean, we can't I necessarily get all of those things right away if Joe Biden is elected. But by the way, that's January, if, yeah, even if he is yeah. elected. Um, and I do, by the way, agree with you. Um, that um, vaccine is obviously, you know, the best way to control this. But, it, you know, when we talk about reopening in the coming three to six months, we're not going to have that available to us. I, I do completely agree. It's one thing to conceptualize it. There's something comforting about having a framework. Um, but the reality of achieving that is really much more, is much more challenging. And testing alone, the volume of tests that we have to do is formidable. But the second piece you know, the investigation of those cases, the identification of those contacts. I mean, there was a report uh, developed by, by ASSO, the Association of State and Territorial Health, Health Officials with, with the Hopkins Group uh, that came out this weekend, estimating that if we were to do this with the old-fashioned shoe leather epidemiology, interview people, identify their contacts, we would need 100,000 people easily, you know, nas nationally to do this. And, you know, I think we have to start thinking in really out-of-the-box approaches. You know, the Google, Apple, um, collaboration of using people's cell phones and Bluetooth to do it all tech, you know, with, te with high tech and even what's been done in South Korea with apps. Um, mm. I think the, it, to do this right and allow us to reopen in ways that make us feel like we're back to quasi-normal, we have to do stuff we've never done before and probably can't even envision now. But it's more than just contact tracing old-fashioned ways. It'll be a combination of manual labor, old-fashioned public health, and, and using technology in ways we haven't used it before. And of course, that'll raise all kinds of questions around privacy and the surveillance state and how much mm -hmm. we're willing to give up for the health of the public. Shoe leather epidemiology. I've never heard- <laughs> That's a new I, term? <laughs> no, I, that's more than a new term. That's a new Netflix series, I think. This is extraordinary. No, no, it's an old term. Is that's it? An old okay, term. okay. I'm old school public health. Yeah, but I, this idea that you need 100,000 people to take on that, that task, if that's actually, we started to take that seriously. I mean, we, there's so many numbers coming at us all the time, but that number really, to me, is very arresting because that gives us a sense of the labor need of actually taking this seriously at this, at this phase of things. I wanted to um, get a couple other quick questions in. I wanted to ask you this last time. Um, and so my question is really about public health more generally. When public health officials think about their recommendations to elected officials, do they also bring economic analysis to the table? 
In other words, these kinds of questions about lost revenues or economic impacts, when there's a, a room full of experts in a mayor's office or a governor's office, does the public health official called upon to give their recommendations in light of economic reality? Because I feel like we are faced often with this, it's often framed as this very stark choice right now. This, we're at the plateau, is this an acceptable sort of situation if we can bring that down a little bit, begin to open the economy versus this amount of economic pain on the other side? Is that something public health officials work on, on that part of it? Or is the job in public health about understanding what's happening, saving lives, planning? The I think first and foremost, it's about saving lives, you know, um, preventing illness. Uh, I think first and foremost, that's the priority. Do folks think about the economic impact of public health decisions? Absolutely. And even the small scale, you know, you close down a restaurant, you're well aware you're going right. to you know, 15 people out of work. Or, um, so I do think people think that. Um, and I've heard a lot about the balance between the economic impact of the social distancing versus the immediate control measures it's going to have on the pandemic. Um, and, you know, the deaths of despair that we're going to be producing later on. I do think it's a false equivalence. Um, I don't, you know, people, people don't, you know, say we should keep the economy open and so I'm not going to social distance. But if I get COVID-19, I'm not going to go to the ER because I've made this choice. I mean, yeah, right. You know, I think it's an impossible situation. Um, and, and that's why the, the, the way to open up the economy the, is, is to do the aggressive public health measures like, you know, ramping, the social distancing now will have been worth it if we can really ramp up testing and come up with a aggressive way to do contact tracing to get some visibility on this. So we can, we're permitted to open up the economy in ways that doesn't, you know, endanger people's lives and health. I mean, that's the way to do it. Um, and that's with having the economy in mind. Um, I think, you know, the short, the short term solution of just let's, let's just, you know, you know, stop the social distancing and, and go back to normal is short sighted because we'll end up with, you know, a rash of cases again and morbidity and mortality. So I think, I think, you know, the, the right way to, to return us to some normal state and, and restore the economy to some quasi, you know, stable place is to, is to have aggressive public health measures in place. But they require a way of thinking that we've never thought before. Esther mm -hmm. Chernak from Drexel University, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. And we are gonna have you back on April 22nd, so about nine days from now. So we'll get another update from you at that time. And uh, thank you so much for everything you're doing. We'll talk to you then. Thanks, happy to be here. I wanna remind everybody that you are watching COVID Calls and we are gonna turn now to our second guest of today, Howard C. Conrather. I'm really pleased to bring Howard onto COVID Calls. He is the James G. Dynan Professor Emeritus in the Operations Information and Decisions Department at the Wharton School in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. And he is co-director of Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center. Dr. Conrather is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and a distinguished fellow of the Society for Risk Analysis. He is an author of many books, a co-author of many books and editor of many books most recently, one that I was uh, glad to uh, play some very small role in um, was his edited volume, The Future of Risk Management, which came out recently with the University of Pennsylvania Press. And um, that is a book that was co-edited with Robert J. Meyer and Erwan O. Michelle Kurjan. Howard Conrather, thank you so much for coming on to COVID Calls. Always good to be with you, Scott. Looking forward to our discussion. 
So I want to just start, Howard, if we could um, tell us what this, at a personal level, what's it been like? What's your own experience with COVID-19 been like? How have you adapted your life and your work in this time? Well, I'm adapting my life in a similar way to your, you're adapting your life. When I look at you at the screen here, I'm at home, I'm working. Uh, I am somehow uh, in touch with a number of people uh, who are concerned with this particular uh, virus uh, and uh, been doing a lot of it through uh, blue jeans and through Zoom that we're on today. But I am at the same time, in, uh, uh, in very close touch with our family, and our families are in various places. I have, uh, we have four children. My wife, Gail, and I are here at home, and the four children are elsewhere, and we are actually in touch with them. We had a Zoom Seder uh, that we had on, on Wednesday night, and uh, uh, so that, that's been part of it. And then I have uh, tried to exercise uh, safely uh, by biking on, on closed Martin Luther King Drive. I used to play, I played tennis until the courts were closed. So I'm trying to do that, but trying to stay as safe as one can. And I think most important, and I think for this discussion, uh, really focusing on the impact that uh, COVID-19 is having uh, on uh, our future. And in particular, as you mentioned in your introductory remarks on natural disasters, climate change, and other aspects, and trying to see whether there's an opportunity here with COVID-19 to really take advantage of the fact that people are paying attention to these low probability high consequence events, which is a theme, as you know, our risk center has been focusing on for now 35 years. Uh, at the time that we started, uh, there were very few people who were paying attention to this. Uh, our first study, I like to remind people, it'll date me, but uh, you may remember it, Scott, although you're somewhat younger than I am, was why people didn't wear seatbelts, uh, which was the case a number of years ago. Yeah. And uh, that, I think, has been taken care of. Uh, but we're much more interested interested now in uh, the global risks and and just for full disclosure, Scott and I have talked a great deal and written a paper together on natural disasters and flood and delighted that you were very instrumental in helping us get our book, The Future of Risk Management, together as one of the part of a series. So we thank you for that, Scott. Well, so that's kind of what I've been doing. We can talk about yeah, that in sure. kind of almost any way that you'd like. Well, it's a great book and I hope people will, will check it out and it couldn't be any more timely. I want to uh, talk first Howard, I want to talk about your many of the important concepts you've worked with in your career. I want to start, though, with something you published very recently. It's a piece in Politico uh, that you published with Paul Slovic on March 26th. And I'm just going to uh, quote a line from it. It says, if there's any silver lining in this mess, it's that the coronavirus pandemic is teaching us a valuable lesson about the perils of ignoring destructive processes and perhaps even larger, longer-term disasters that increase exponentially. So... You're writing a piece about exponential growth and making a connection between COVID-19 and climate change understanding. Can you tell us a little bit about this article? I'd be happy to, and I want to bring Paul Slovic very directly into this. Paul and I have been working for um, uh, for even uh, for 30 or 40 years now, 40 years actually, and longer than that, on, on these issues. Uh, and more recently, we've been together in terms of a grant that we have from the Sloan Foundation. So we've been talking about catastrophic risk, both, uh, uh, but in particular, uh, we've been talking about ways to try to prevent people from actually... Uh, 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 
or ignoring these events. The exponential growth argument was a very interesting one. And it came up really with uh, Paul contacting me and indicating that there was an opportunity here to possibly write a piece with Politico. And he thought it would be interesting to talk about exponential growth and how that played a role with not only the COVID-19, but climate change, which I'll talk about in a moment. And so um, I had not really thought about exponential growth in quite the way that Paul had, because there was an experiment done by William Wagonar, who was a psychologist who I knew, but I didn't know the experiment back in 1975 of how difficult the people had in actually understanding exponential growth. They would think of linear growth, that they would think of things, but they wouldn't think of exponential growth. And so what we basically did in this piece was to say, look, let's first understand that this is a concept that we all have a hard time identifying with. And what we actually did was we, we talked very briefly about the experiments, but there was an article that we mentioned in uh, the, uh, the piece that I'll just uh, I'll, I'll highlight here because it's very relevant to sort of our misunderstanding. Megan McArdle wrote a piece in the Washington Post on March 10th, before we of course got into this, and she actually used the analogy of how do you understand exponential growth by talking about uh, a lily pads in a pond and the idea of how long it would take for the pond to be filled. And they would double every day, started with one up until two, and then at some point the pond would be filled. And the, and the, anal and the part that she utilized, that she actually uh, sh um, shed light on was the fact that at 47 days, the pond would be half full. Now, if it doubled every day, you would know on the 48th day it would be totally filled. But the point that most people do not understand, I certainly wouldn't have guessed this if I was asked to do an experiment, on the 40th day, the lily pads would cover only one 256th of the pond, or less than half a percent, 0.4 percent. And that, of course, is what we've observed with the coronavirus, uh, as we well know. When we started looking at the coronavirus and COVID-19, and in the months of January and February, there, was, there were very few people who had actually contracted the disease. The disease. Uh, only 70 at the end of February. There was only one fatality on February 29th that occurred. And yet, when you then turn our attention to March and April and see where we are now and look at, listening to the statistics that you just gave us at the beginning of the program, we were in very, very different, uh, in a very different situation. And so we said, let's try to uh, analyze, let's try to make that case that people don't understand it, and then take it from there to say, maybe there's an opportunity to try to get people to pay attention to global emissions with respect to climate change and the impact that climate change would have on natural disasters and on a whole variety of natural disasters. And that's why we wrote the piece. And we can talk a little bit about that aspect in a moment, as you would like. Well, how has the, how has the article been, been received? I mean, have people found it um, surprising, perhaps, that, that this seemed like a, an opening to tap into the way people are thinking about risk? I mean, risk perception is always hard, but connecting climate change risk perception and uh, the exponential growth of COVID-19 is perhaps surprising to some. Well, I think uh, I would say the following, that we have had a lot of comments on the article, and many of them said that this was important to get people to pay attention to climate change this way. 
Uh, at the same time, we've had people who are saying, even if you get people to pay attention to climate change, I'm not sure that we're going to get any change in behavior. And that, of course, is a challenge that we face. And it relates not only to the exponential growth, but a whole set of biases and other things that people have that they decide not to pay attention. So I think what came out of this was, was that were both of those arguments. We did, I will say, just for full disclosure, we spent a lot of time talking with Michael Oppenheimer, mm -hmm. uh, who we have been working with. Uh, we have our center has a, a, a grant with the National Science Foundation with Princeton. And he is absolutely one of the people who would spend a great deal of time on this to talk about the global emissions problem to make sure that we were on course on that. And he indicated that the data that we had from Mauna Lao was the, was the best data that was available to show that, but that we could also kind of use that as a springboard for the fact that it's likely to get much, much worse in the future. And if we don't do something about it, we're going to have a considerable exponential growth uh, with respect to emissions and then concentrations and then the impacts that you uh, and I and a number of others have been focusing on on natural disasters. And that's the point that we would want to make. But whether it will get people to pay attention, we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. That is a real challenge. Because in the case of the coronavirus, people are paying attention to it now because they're really scared. They have a lot of the features of risk perception that they didn't have uh, initially when uh, in January and February, they're, 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 they're dreading it. There is catastrophic potential, there's fatalities. They have that information at hand. And so therefore we're doing the kinds of things we have to do, like we talked with Esther about, sheltering at home, making sure that businesses are closed, universities are closed. We know Drexel and and all the universities, many of them around the country now, I think most all of them are closed. So we're doing the kind of online kind of activity because of the fact we appreciate the fact that if we don't do that, we will have major, major problems. And as Esther was saying with your discussion, if we if we get out, we all of a sudden go back to work and open things too quickly, we're going to have a recurrence of this and we may have, uh, and even if it looks like things are down right now. So we know that people are paying attention to the coronavirus in COVID-19. How do we get them to pay attention to climate change? How do we get them to pay attention to the natural disasters? And that's something that we've been doing a lot of thinking about in terms of our own risk center and certainly the discussions that Paul and I have had. Well, I want to turn to that because, you know, risk perception, there's so many different things that go into it. There's individuals, there's community, there's experts, there's data. Um, let's just come into the question you know, at the most abstract level, are there general principles that you start out with when you think about how people perceive risk? Well, I think, first of all, I would start with the work that Paul Slovak has done, as you were alluding to, that there are a set of features with respect to how people perceive them that, that are of concern to people or not of concern. And that is just the, that, the, the ones that I mentioned, dread and, and, and ca catastrophic potential, and the fact that this is a new risk that is not known to science, which is a major challenge for the epidemiologist. People are concerned about that because none of us really know exactly what's going to happen even now. So you start with that element and sort of say, look, there's been really a, a change with respect to the fact that people are alarmed now. They were not alarmed with in, in January and February. But then I would turn to this element as part of cognitive biases. And there are a set of biases that we that I would put on the table that really play a role here that we have to pay attention to. And I, I can go over those with you or how you Yeah, like. let's let's talk about those cognitive biases, Howard, because I think 
they're really useful as we, you know, we're going to think about individual kinds of disasters, but there seem to be principles that, that operate somehow in a psycho, psycho, social psychological way across disasters. So let's talk about those. What are the cognitive biases that you think well, we should be aware of? Well, let me mention a few that we felt were that uh, were important and that we're actually sort of uh, can be put on the table. First is myopia, one of the most important ones. We have short-term horizons, so we focus on the immediacy, and as a result of that, we sort of said in January, February, you know, um, myopia. Look at what's happening now. We have nothing to worry about now. Of course, we're focusing on in our myopic state, but I, I, an appropriate state to be in how serious things are. And that ties in with another bias I can mention right now, uh, simplification. We often focus on only one of the dimensions of a problem. And in January, February said, look, even if we heard about China, even if we heard about other places, uh, the chances of our having something happening are very low. We're not going to worry about it. And so there's a tendency to do that. Now, with simplification as a bias, now we're focusing almost entirely, and appropriately so, on the consequences, but we're not really asking ourselves the questions uh, on the likelihood of things and how do we change that likelihood and how do we deal with it. So that's another bias. A third bias that uh, plays out here that is also tied with these other two is optimism. You know, this is, we, we look at the fact that the likelihood of this disaster is so low that why should we even worry about it, underestimating it? You tie that in with exponential growth, and when myopia is partly related to the, uh, not understanding exponential growth, and we actually focus on things that we actually should be paying attention to now, but we're not. And then, an, uh, and then a, a, another one, and I'll, 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 I'll stop with, well, a couple of others that I can mention. Inertia, we don't want to change. We just want to continue our normal activities. It took a regulation to get us to be at home, and people were not very willing to do that at the outset, as we know, and it finally got to the point where we sort of said, you got to do it, and unfortunately, we have people doing that and recognizing the importance. Social distancing is another part of that, and that turns, it, turns out with to relate to another bias, herding. We have a lot of people who, uh, you know, want to herd with their friends and neighbors, mm -hmm. uh, and their neighbors want to herd with them, and they're both all sort of saying, well, you know, let's celebrate spring break in Florida. Let's do a set of things that we can mm -hmm. do, and that was even in March that people were doing that, and so they were using, these other biases were leading them to do a set of things that they probably should never have considered doing. And the other part of herding that I'll just mention is that we look to our friends and neighbors for advice, but they not, may not know anything more than we do. <laughs> and as a result of that, we actually find ourselves in a position where we're all behaving in a way that really causes a set of challenges. And that's a part of the biases. And when you don't have the scientists really on the radar screen until very recently, that mm -hmm. makes it even harder for people to sort of pay attention because they're listening to advice that there is not a, there is not a pandemic, we'll be back to work in, in Easter and a whole set of things that complicate the matter enormously. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you in your research, how much information does it take and from whom to begin to counter these biases, to be able to offer counter narratives, to get people to stop and think about the optimism bias, for example. Oh, well, this is happening to other people, but this couldn't happen to me. You know, how long does it take? What kind of information does it take to begin to 
slow people down and get them to think more critically along those lines. Well, you know, Scott, this is, this is the tri critical issue we're facing right now, as we know and even discussing. We really, really need leadership and leadership at the top, frankly. We need to do something that you and I have talked about over the years, and that is linking our science with our policy. Mm -hmm. We need the scientists to, to be our leaders. We need to have people who are in, in offices, uh, governors, uh, leaders in Congress, leaders of the president. We need these people to indicate to us that we have a problem that we have to pay attention to. And if we can do that, and then at the same time provide the right data, and also scenarios of what could happen where the epidemiologists can try to do, can do that, and they certainly were in a position to do that, not so, not so much in early January when no one quite knew what was happening, but the minute we got the data from China, we could actually compile, we could provide that information to people so they would understand it. And then when you put Put the regulations in place and if regulations have been put in place in February we would have been in a different situation than we are right now then people I think would be willing to do it but you need authority we need people who we feel we can trust and at the same time giving us information that enables us to say we are being too optimistic and someone saying just exactly that telling people that we are doing that and the hope is that on that basis we'd be in a position to actually get people to, to, to take steps forward in a, in a way that they otherwise might not. people that I'm talking with Howard Conruther on COVID calls and I'd like you to please be sure to get your questions in. You can send questions in to the YouTube live chat or you can tag me on Twitter at US of Disaster and get your question in. Howard, let's stick with this um, issue of policy for a second because when I think about it and the way you're talking about it, it's almost like we're saying that we rely on policymakers in moments like this to sort of short circuit our own brains. Uh, that, that is to say, they need to sometimes come in with instruments that take the decision-making process away from the individual. And that's done for the greater, that's done for the greater good. In, in a democracy like the United States, of course, that immediately opens all sorts of concerns. I'm thinking here about, you know, Florida and, you know, them keeping the beaches open during spring break or New Orleans and them keeping Mardi Gras open. Um, policymakers certainly had access to good information. They could have used policy instruments in that, in that moment. They chose not to. In other states, they have. And so it's hard, when I think about the use of policy here, it's hard sometimes for me to generalize. It seems like, particularly in a country as diverse as the United States, the policy instruments available um, are often not generalizable, particularly when the federal government is inactive in this moment. So where are you seeing policy interventions right now that you think should be copied, replicated, that are working in this particular moment? 
Well, it's, a, it's an excellent question. I and mean, let me first address the fact that you, one understands essentially that, our, that all of us as individuals have these biases and policymakers clearly have biases and myopia being one of them in the sense that they are elected officials. They, yeah. There's an election coming up in 2020. Everyone is thinking about what's gonna happen to them in that election. You and I know, uh, but I'll raise it for the other audience, the one acronym that I will use given your question Nimtoff, and if we would be able to talk with people, we'd ask them what it meant. And most people say, not in my, they do get that, but it's not in my term of office. And so if you're going to have that, you're going to have a whole set of things that are going to happen that are actually going to be very dysfunctional from the vantage point of, 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 get, of dealing with this particular situation that we're faced with. So having said that, I do think that what has also happened and this is uh, the, the, the positive part of all of this, that we have governors who have actually taken a, the situation and recognized how serious it is and what we have to do to preserve the, you know, make sure we save lives. And the minute saving lives gets put on the table as important, and we see where we are, we were in March and we are now in April, uh, that you're gonna have them really becoming statesmen in the sense that they won't think about these biases, but will say, as Governor Cuomo has said, and I use him as certainly a model that we're all very aware of, we, we have a horrible situation in New York. We've got to deal with that. And coming on and saying, here are the things we have to do. And people have been enormously responsive to him and to other governors, but I'll just use him as an example that everyone I think is aware of, and also a state that uh, has had the worst cases and New York City having by far the worst to actually take the situation and say, we've got to deal with this and we have to deal with this now. Now, having said that, it becomes really important to, to say we need features of our, uh, we need institutions that can deal with this. We need regulations that can deal with this. We need the right kinds of structure. And people, as you rightly said, in a democracy, we sort of try to avoid this. We said, let the market operate. You know, I'm at the Wharton School, so I should be saying that. I wouldn't say it for these particular events because we need to have things in place. And I think the regulations that have been followed by almost every state now, but reluctantly so by some of the states, as you pointed out, are the ones that I think are, hel are helping to reduce the number of fatalities. And that has happened. And I think the positive part about the COVID-19 uh, and coronavirus is the compassion that people have felt, the fact that they are following uh, a set of regulations, the fact that we're all paying attention to them. And I think that's true of everyone that I've talked to. We're all saying, I don't really want to go out without a mask. I want to make sure that I do my shopping very infrequently. And I would say if I am biking, I want to bike on a road that is not really filled with a lot of other bikers. And we've been fortunate to have things like roads being closed now for being able to do that. So there are things that are happening here that are positive. I think the challenge that we face, and I want to move to uh, spend a few minutes with you on that, so I'll move to it, is the one that you were introduced. The challenge we face is with, uh, with climate change, it's hard to do this. And I think we've been successful in doing this, and I would say that we are not going to, if we have another pandemic, we will be better prepared. And the model that I would use, you asked me for a model, I would use South Korea as the model. 
South Korea has done a remarkable job with respect to the uh, coronavirus in terms of actually having plenty of tests, tracing people, making sure they're quarantined, and their death rate is far lower, and their, the testing has been far much better than anything we've had in other countries and certainly in the United States. And so that's a model to follow. But it's interesting, as, as you and I both know, that uh, it often takes a disaster for them to do that. And they had, a, in 2005, they had a disaster with SARS and MERS, mm -hmm. and they learned from that on things they should do. And the question is, how are we going to learn on things like climate change, where it may be too late for us to learn, and we have to pay attention to that now? I want to uh, stick with this issue around the sort of political economy of this, Howard, because I know you think a lot about this. And you know, one of the one of the ideas that's more common in the United States is that a competitive competition of interests will actually drive to the sort of best overall outcome, that we will achieve a, a consensus through a participatory process. It's democracy. It's also the market. Um, we will have fewer bureaucrats involved, fewer government agencies telling us what to do. Um, and that has been, I mean, and everything from the way we write building codes to the way we've um, approached this public health crisis, I think shows that inheritance that we have in the United States compared to some other, some other countries. Um, and I wonder though, in this particular moment, I mean, are we learning something about the failures and the problems with that? with that faith? Do we need a deeper bench in the bureaucracy? Do we need more risk experts in the, in the government? Esther was talking about the 100,000 shoe, shoe leather epidemiologists. I mean, do we, do we need just a stronger investment in risk expertise around the United States? Well, you know my biases and probably yours. I would say, yes, we probably do. And I want to put that on the table as one who thinks about it. But I think I would raise a much uh, the broader question that you're raising. You know, uh, and it comes back to work that Daniel Kahneman has done on his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. What we really find is that people do extremely well when we have a lot of past experience, when we have a market that is operating and you learn something from it, uh, making uh, production decisions uh, are ones that people can, firms can do easily. We know when to break on a car. We know when to cross the street. We know when to do a lot of things. And markets are, are, are normally good when you have a lot of feedback on them and you can sort of see. We have very little feedback with these low probability events by definition. We don't have them very often. People haven't had a past experience. People don't know anything about the 1918 uh, pandemic until we now are reading about how embarrassed we were as a country to even talk about it. I never had it in my history class. I never even knew much about it. I thought of it much more in Europe and, and, in, and in other parts of the world, but never thought about what it did in the United States. So we don't have that feedback. And so as a result, we absolutely have to change our view of how we deal with the, with the world. And hopefully the coronavirus will do the kinds of things you're suggesting, which will not only bring risk on the table, bring epidemiology, bring the science and experts on people who can say something about them, and to try to take some steps to prepare. I mean, that, that is the big, big challenge that we face in this whole area. Uh, I will mention just one uh, reason that I, I'm talking about preparedness, which is something you, you uh, we've talked about. When Bob Meyer, Bob Meyer and I wrote a book that I know you're familiar with called The Ostrich Paradox, where we asked, we said, we've got all these biases and what people are trying to do is to change them. 
And our feeling was, we're not going to change them. We're going to have to live with these biases, but let's try to figure out how to deal with them in such a way that people will pay attention. So the biases I talked about, we sort of said, look, you're not going to really change how people are going to see uh, optimism, myopia, uh, all of these things. Let's talk about a, a behavioral risk audit. We called it, you know, we called it the book, The Ostrich Paradox. <laughs> because of something we didn't know, but one of my colleagues uh, actually told me, Paul Shoemaker, who, was, who has worked in this area, he said, you call this the ostrich paradox because of the fact that what do ostriches do? And most people will respond. You can respond. What will, sure. what will they say? They bury our heads in the sand. And they don't bury their heads in the sand. They're very smart. Yeah. They actually uh, put their beaks for food. And you look at pictures of ostriches, but they're, they're getting food, but they're a very, they are very smart. They prepare for disasters. They run very fast. They escape a, a, a disaster. They protect their young. We bury our heads in the sand. Mm -hmm. and so what we're really saying is markets are not going to work well here. We've got to get people to really understand that these biases, including the exponential growth bias, as an example, are, are ones we have to pay attention to. Uh, we, a, a very simple notion, you tell people there's a one in a hundred chance of a flood next year. Yeah. And they say, mm, well, that's so low, I'm not going to pay attention. You tell them there's a chance of that flood occurring with a greater than one in five chance in 25 years. And they say, oh, well, that's pretty high. Right. So little things like that have to be done. But I don't think we can rely on the market. I don't think we can rely on people to perceive that. And I think the challenge in climate change is to really, really figure out how we can tell people, look at the severity of what's going to happen 20 or 30 years from now. And they're going to say, well, that's 20 or 30 years from now. Mm -hmm. That isn't something that we really have to worry about. And so we have to figure out ways to actually convince people that they should be thinking about this. And I think the only point, and I'll bring it up to you, maybe get a comment from you on this. The only way that, that at least I see this right now, and Paul Slovak and I have talked about this, is that both of us, I think, say, can you take advantage of a disaster that happens? That's what has happened right now with the coronavirus, and people are now going to pay attention to that. Can you take advantage of a heat wave and say, look, we're going to have a 30, you know, 95 degrees or 100 degree weather, and you say to people, look, not only is this something that you should pay attention, but there are going to be 20 or 30 more days of that in the future. Look at your hurricane that you're worried about now, but look at what it's going to be like if the sea level rise and you're going to have uh, in more intense hurricanes, it's going to be a lot worse than it is now. And I, I don't see any other way to really, really deal with this problem. And I'll turn to you uh, because you're an expert on this, Scott. If you have some thoughts on that, I'd be interested. Well, it, it ties back to something you said earlier, which is the unfortunate truth that disasters do raise people's um, capacity for sensation. They're, they're alert, they're awake, they're aware, they're taking in new information. People are, um, you know, we have a general sense uh, that the military has promoted over years that people panic in disaster, but it's not the case at all. People are actually very creative and resilient in disaster, and it seems an opening. Um, and I think the media has been quite good about this since at least 2017 in making that connection between the severity of storms and climate change. So I think I'm, a, I'm optimistic and agreeing with you, Howard, that I think if we're ready 
with the research and if we can bring those messages to people to make those linkages, I'm hopeful that people can learn about risk. What I wanted to um, turn to, we have a few more minutes here, make sure people can get a question in if you want to, to Howard Conrather, send your question in to YouTube live chat or send it by Twitter. Um, there's another sort of body of risk experts out there, Howard, and I know you work um, thinking about this a lot, and that's the private insurance industry. And we've talked a lot about sort of public risk managers and experts, but what do you see happening in the, in the wake of COVID-19? And I guess if you want to tie this into climate change as well, in the private uh, realm of risk management and the insurance realm. Well, I, let me tie it to COVID-19, which is your question, because I mean, the, the insurance industry is concerned about climate change. Let me say that straight out. But they're concerned about it in the context of what it's going to be doing to uh, the next year more than next, necessarily the next 10 years, more intense hurricanes and, and other, other things that could occur. And they're concerned about that risk. But with COVID-19, I think the big issue right now with everyone is, what is, what is covered by, how, how do we deal with pandemics and what is covered? And what is not covered by pandemics in a many, many of the policies is business interruption coverage for particularly for small firms. And so there is a lot of attention that is being paid right now and our risk center is involved in, in some discussions on that at the moment uh, is what kind of a, a program can be developed for the future for dealing with pandemics where the insurance industry recognizes that they don't have good data on what the likelihood is going to be of another pandemic and the consequences of that could be enormous. And so there's a that right now Congress is focusing on that issue uh, by looking at the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, which is TRIA, which was passed after 9-11 as a basis for really trying to figure out how you're going to deal with terrorism, where, where a lot of the, uh, where the insurance industry was actually insuring terrorism uh, before 9-11, even though the, the data suggested maybe they should have focused on it more. They weren't paying any attention to terrorism then, but they recognized after 9-11 they weren't going to do it. And I think there's a question right now, what will happen with respect to pandemics, even if business interruption is included in a policy today, it's not clear that it will be included if the private sector was going to have to deal with it alone. So there is a real need for public-private partnerships for dealing with that because of the nature of this particular risk. So that's at least how they're, and I think that's the biggest issue that everyone is talking about right now in the insurance side. How do we deal with the consequences of pandemics? And then the question that one could raise, or that hasn't been raised, but I'll raise it for, you, for this discussion, is are there ways to make the insurance industry feel more comfortable by knowing that there will be tests that will be given if there happens to be a start of it, that there'll be ways to try to make sure that, or take a, take a steps to avoid having the kind of pan, uh, pandemic we have now, maybe an epidemic, but not a pandemic, but even a, a minor epidemic. And I think mitigation, which is something we talk about with natural disasters, taking steps to make sure that you are prepared for the next flood, the next tornado, uh, which is a harder one to prepare for, but certainly the flood and earthquake and hurricanes are ones. Maybe that's a way of bringing insurance into the picture as a way of being better prepared for these disasters in the future. Well, I wanted to tie this back because you and I have worked about worked on flood insurance program, <clears throat> worked on flood insurance in the United States, and you know back to the early days uh, of that program, the the legislation that created it was 
um, took into account and, and had a lot of faith and hope that the government would play a crucial role in funding the science that would then make it possible for the private sector through insurance instruments um, to be able to, um, you know, not, uh, not go broke in writing bad policies, that you had to have that knowledge as a base to then make the, the market work well. It comes back to what you were saying earlier about the need for a lot of feedback in the system for the, for the market to work well. You think that, um, you know, I guess to a certain degree, maybe the insurance industry feels it's been burned um, by the flood insurance program, and it's been difficult to to really you know keep that market going. Do you do you have some hope that pandemic may be different in some regard, or does something fundamental have to change about the way Washington works before the insurance industry will move into this space? Well, I have a I have a more positive feeling about flood, which I <clears> want to <throat> mention to you. I think there is now, and we've done some work. Carolyn Kuski, my colleague, has taken a lead on 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 this, and we've been involved in our center on private flood insurance. And I think there's more interest now on private flood insurance. And I think for good, for the reasons that you were alluding to, we do have better data. We do have a way of actually dealing with this. And the challenge will be what premiums will be set and what the regulators will allow uh, the private sector to the charge for premiums, but there is a fair a market that is now developing on, the, on, on that level. I think that, so, when I, so I think flood has a better chance, that's what I'd want to say, a better chance of being successful because we've got better data and we have a lot of past experience. I think when it comes to pandemics, we have more of a challenge and it's closer to terrorism in a way, which is why the TRIA program is being used because we really have a hard time estimating probabilities of, of this happening and on the consequences if we have this. And that's been shown very clearly in what's happening currently. So I think the insurance industry is more concerned about the pandemic problem. And I think they're more interested in possibly getting into flood insurance, depending on what might actually be provided in the way of, of backup against catastrophic losses, which would have to be done in both cases. You need that, you need that protection against catastrophic losses, which is part of what TRIA and the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act is doing. So that's kind of where I think we're at right now on this. And the hope is that we'll come up with something that will make some sense. But on a broader level, I think the role of government has become more and more important because of this uh, of coronavirus. And I think we have an opportunity to start looking at other broader issues that we haven't had a chance to talk about like inequality, like notion of what are we, how are we going to deal with yeah. the low income people? And so many people are suffering from this disaster who have lost their jobs, who have low income and are, are looking to the government. And I think there's a better appreciation of the fact that government has to play a key role on a lot of different levels, not just in the context of uh, providing protection against insurance, but some of these other things that are on the table. We're almost up on time, Howard, but I did want to get one more question in, and it really, it's a question we could do a whole other session about, but you have such a, a, a long and successful career in this space, and so many people uh, look up to you as a research mentor, and you've been a mentor to so many people. This is also a moment in which I think there's going to be a new generation of disaster researchers come out of this. I mean, I think that the problems that are presented to us right now are so compelling, so human, so complicated, um, that a new generation of researchers is probably coming out of this, this moment right now. And I guess I just want to ask you, you know, how you feel as a researcher looking back. I mean, you started your career, Cold War, and so many natural disasters and hazards that you've worked on in your career. Do you do you have the optimism that a sort of rising generation of scholars can 
can find these problems, find support to work on these problems and actually make, make a difference? Absolutely. I am very optimistic about that, Scott, in the way that you're presenting it. Uh, I wouldn't be even involved in this research if it wasn't something that I felt was so important for us to do, and mainly because there are young people who are taking advantage, who are involved, and who, frankly, who I've been learning from, and I've had an opportunity to interact with. And so I would say that is exactly what needs to happen and hopefully will happen. So I am very optimistic that we take advantage of a disaster, and we know it's after a disaster we have a chance to make some changes, and I hope and I think this disaster uh, is likely to be cataclysmic on many, many ways. On so many levels, we haven't had a chance to talk about. But to answer your question, yes, I'm optimistic. It's in one of the most exciting times in my life because people are actually paying attention to a lot of these issues. And you having this program every single night doing it, which I think is a wonderful thing for you to be doing and a great service for everyone. I want to uh, uh, thank you for what you've been doing to make people uh, aware of the kinds of problems we have. And I think it's along those lines that there are going to be a lot of young people and I hope that you're getting a lot of young people to participate in the dialogue and discussion. And uh, it's something that I think uh, will hopefully happen. Uh, we can never be certain. It's an uncertain world. We study risk, but I think there is a real good chance for that to happen in the future. Well, I think if many of us didn't have the optimism that you know, increasing knowledge and solidarity and working together as research community didn't have hope of reaching policymakers, we wouldn't be doing this. So I want to thank you for sharing that perspective and for everything you do. Howard, uh, thank you. And I want to let everybody know you've been listening to Howard Conruther and Esther Chernak on COVID calls tomorrow. We will, I'm just one, one more um, plug here for Howard's books, but also for his um, recent article, What the Coronavirus Curve Teaches Us About Climate Change with Paul Slovic. You can find that. Uh, I've got it linked up on my on Twitter and also you can find it in Politico. It's from March 26th. Howard, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. It's been a pleasure and I've really enjoyed our dialogue and I look forward to future interactions with you. Everybody come back tomorrow too at five o'clock Eastern time when I talk with Jay Aronson and Adia Benton about disaster memorials. We'll see you then. Stay healthy. Bye. Bye.